Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. For every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. We have reached our conclusion. We have reached the final episode of our miniseries of Camp is Cancelled. We have delved into three unmade Friday the 13th sequels. We are covering Quentin Tarantino's ultimate Jason Voorhees movie, which we're going to get into in a bit because it actually wasn't going to be what you think it was going to be, but it's certainly going to be interesting. We are joined yet again by co-counselor Jinx. Jinx, how's it going? Josh, how are you? I am doing pretty good. Welcome to our... Final episode of Campus Cancelled. How do you feel? I'm feeling pretty great. I'm glad we are ready to tackle this movie that, as I understand it, was only five minutes away from production before, <laughs> sadly, it was shut down. Uh, <laughs> loads of concrete info on what this movie was going to be. So uh, can't mm-hmm. wait to dive in. Just in case this is like the first time someone's tuning in to a Campus Cancelled episode, could you just give us a little rundown about who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Jason Jenkins. Please call me Jinx. I am a writer and podcaster. Uh, I have a column for Bloody Disgusting called Phantom Limbs that concerns itself with uh, unmade horror movies. Uh, Well, specifically unmade horror sequels and remakes and the like. And uh, I have a podcast called Scream Addicts. Please give it a listen. And otherwise, I am... uh, 
I am I am uh, just at Josh's command to mm-hmm. come onto this podcast whenever he uh, he deems it necessary. So easy access. We've got him locked in the cellar, but he's full of good info, and today will be no different. As I mentioned, we are talking about a Quentin Tarantino ultimate Jason Voorhees movie, but let me get a little bit more specific here because it's a little bit of a mislead. So in 2005, there was a bit of a infamous online journalism incident with IGN. Uh, They went on record saying that Quentin Tarantino was sort of in final negotiations to create what they were calling an ultimate Jason Voorhees movie. Now, I don't know if this was real. I don't know if this was fake. Quentin Tarantino does have something to say on the matter. And we're going to get into it a little bit later. But I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of a rundown of what we're going to be tackling today. Because we're getting the opportunity to talk about Quentin Tarantino, we're going to really dig into the trenches with his career. You may or may not remember, but on Halloween is Cancelled, we did discuss Quentin Tarantino's Halloween 6. Jinx was here for that too. Now we're heading into Friday the 13th territory. We're going to talk about his career. We're going to talk about his possible Jason Voorhees movie. And then if Jinx is okay with it, now that we're wrapping up Campus Cancelled, I think I'd like to maybe get into our definitive rankings of the Friday the 13th series. Is that something you're willing to do, Jinx? Um, only if we can also include all of the unmade Friday the 13th movies that we have talked about. If we can slot those in place along the way, I'm completely cool with it. 100%. I am down to clown as usual. So, Jinx, would you be comfortable if I could just give like a tiny bit of um, a seminar on Mr. Quentin Tarantino? Uh, please go ahead. And as I go along, I'm going to pretty much touch base on each of his films, and we're going to give our feelings, our feedback, and our emotions about these movies. So he is like an auteur filmmaker, one of the great American legends of modern cinema. I think that's not an over-exaggeration. His career began back in 1992 with Reservoir Dogs, which I believe he was able to fund after he sold his incredible script for true romance. Reservoir Dogs, Jinx, where does it land on the Quentin Tarantino spectrum for you? Oh, okay. So here's the thing about Tarantino and I. Um, I He's my favorite filmmaker. Um, mm. It's funny. I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, I if I were to run down like my list of favorite movies of all time, definitely his movies are going to be up there. I, But as far as just like a filmmaker who's filmography to me is just nothing but four star films. I mean, that's it's it's gotta be him for me um Mm -hmm. so when you ask me like uh you could ask me how any of his movies slot in like i could give you a ranking but it's gonna be just a matter of degrees with each of them you know what i mean like they're all Mm -hmm. perfect it's just they're varying degrees like they're you know i i just might like this one a little more than that one but they're all just uh they're all gems and so reservoir dogs like is is it my favorite um no you know it might even be like bottom half of his filmography like you know mm-hmm. uh, for me and yet you know that that sounds like i'm dogging the movie it's still a perfect movie like it's still better than most movies of that sort um, yeah, Reservoir Dogs for me also probably lands in the bottom half of his filmography, just because I'm definitely more drawn to stories about women, and he has some, just some of the best women characters in cinema history, maybe some of my ultimate favorite women characters of all time. Uh, we'll get to it, but I'm just gonna spoiler alert it now, Kill Bill Volume 1, 
it's my favorite of the Quentin Tarantino canon. And uh, that character brings me to tears just thinking of her. So this is a movie without really a single woman in it. And that kind of is going to make it a little bit less interesting to me ultimately than all of these other incredible films with all of these just like killer female characters. No, I get it. I It's funny. I mean, that story, like its basic setup is so solid and so perfect that I feel like there could be any number of like spins on that material if someone just do so. Like, I think, you know, maybe a decade or so ago, uh, there was a a reading, like a script reading of Reservoir Dogs with like an all black cast. You know what? Let's let's go ahead and go beyond that. And let's see that movie. I would love to see somebody tackle that movie with an all black cast. And then let's go ahead and push further and do like Reservoir Dogs, but with women, you know? Oh, I almost, oh God, this is going to go on forever. But I was like, who would that be? Like, who would we put in that movie? Bring Patricia Arquette in from True Romance and have her be the version of the character that there was supposed to be at the end of his original screenplay where uh, Clarence died. Have Mm -hmm. Alabama, you know, take the place of Mr. White. And it's funny, if you watch Reservoir Dogs, Mr. White actually references that version of Alabama as being a good little thief, you know, and they, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he wound up not sticking with her because, you know, I, I'm forgetting the quote exactly, but if you push that man woman thing for too long, da da da, you know, but yeah, do that. Give me Patricia Arquette as Harvey Keitel in Reservoir Dogs. Oh, I love it. Grinning ear to ear. Quentin, if you're listening, we want Reservoir Cats. We give you a couple of years, (laughs) please, please make it. Um, moving on, I think we can probably skip over True Romance because it's not one of his directorial moments, but I do love that script. I love that cast. Um, interesting. Well, yeah, I would say Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, that's kind of like the first era of Tarantino, leading into era two where he really skyrocketed, which I like to think of the Pulp Fiction from Dusk Till Dawn era. And this is when he won the Palme d'Or for Pulp Fiction. He got an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, which is well-deserved. And then he also wrote From Dust Till Dawn and starred in it. So he was really busy in these mid-90s Miramax years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Pulp Fiction, man. Like, <laughs> my God, that movie. Um it's funny. I don't know if we're still doing rankings, but I will note that for the longest time, Pulp Fiction stayed my my number one Tarantino. I think it is a it is a beyond perfect movie. I think it it perfectly encapsulates everything that I love about the '90s. Like it just when I watch that movie, I'm immediately 13 years old again, <laughs> falling in love with it over and over and over again. One movie recently replaced it uh as my top tarantino we will eventually get to it but i think pulp fiction is just uh is it once upon a time in hollywood it might be um i'm I'm excited to get into that but i but i have a weird winding history with once upon a time in hollywood where it started out as my least favorite tarantino oh i love it still loved it still thought it was a four-star movie but i was like ah you know like yeah we'll get to it but no pulp fiction like i i remember my mom actually took me when i was 13 years old to go and watch that movie and uh, i i convinced her to take me to it and 10 minutes in i was uh questioning that choice because the dialogue <laughs> is pretty rough and you know it's oh, a it's violent not a movie. movie no well here's the thing man is that she actually loved the movie every bit as much as i did and what's crazy is that she has remained a huge tarantino fan throughout the years so that okay. you know, when i worked in a movie theater i told her like hey come and watch kill bill i think you're gonna dig it you know and so 
Uh, and so she did and she loved it. And so I have, I have, she's always kept in touch and like, we've, uh, you know, we, there's that shared sort of love of Tarantino there. So, uh, that's so, really yeah. cute. No. I love that. <laughs> and so I, yeah, but Pulp Fiction man is still like, just, it gobsmacks me how great that film is every time I watch it. It's, it's incredible. It's, um, it was my, maybe one of my favorites earlier on, but We'll, we'll get to our rankings maybe at the end. And if I include it, I include it. If I don't, my apologies. Whoa. My God. Every week I get the scary noises and I think I'm going to die. And then I always keep it in. Um, I think if it's okay with you, maybe I'll round up into this next era of Tarantino, which is a pretty unique one for a couple of reasons. Because first of all, it's just one film. It's 1997's Jackie Brown. And we didn't get anything else from Tarantino for, I think, like... God, a good six or so years, because as fantastic as Jackie Brown was, I think it didn't perform the way that he had hoped. I think it was a bit of a sleeper, and I think it really rattled him. I think he's a sensitive dude, and I think that, uh, yeah, I think that the response to Jackie Brown was a little bit disappointing. This was Tarantino's homage to black exploitation films, and it was 1997, so he was allowed to do that, and kind of fantastic the cast is great and it moves sort of at a perfect pace uh yeah no jackie brown is fucking awesome um i mean every again like i said i'm gonna be a uh (laughs) just gonna be a broken record (laughs) when it comes to this but um I, 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 there is not one frame out of place in that movie. It is a perfect film. The performances, like the music, the story, th- how he plays with time. Like it was fun enough in Pulp Fiction when we did the three stories about one story, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the timeline is kind of fractured and shifted. But with Jackie Brown, when he shows us the same event, but from multiple points of view. And we learn a little more each time we see these events play out, you know, a little more information is added. That's just brilliant. You know, um, is this his only adaptation? I think so. Yes. Now what's funny is, is I think back in the day, Tarantino actually purchased the rights to a number of, uh, Leonard properties. He, uh, you know, there was rum punch, which became Jackie Brown. He bought the rights to a Western called 40 lashes, less one. He bought the rights to uh, a book called, uh, I think he had purchased the rights to, uh, Leonard's kill shot, which wound up becoming a movie with, uh, Mickey Rourke and Diane Lane and, uh, Thomas Chain. And that movie is actually pretty good, but you know, you imagine like Tarantino tackling that material and like, good God, you know? But yeah, no, I, I, I think Jackie Brown was his only adaptation. We're going to head into Kill Bill territory, which as I mentioned, is definitely the QT property nearest and dearest to my heart. You were mentioning that you kind of have this, um, you and your mom kind of bond over Quentin Tarantino and me and my dad have this like real long lasting connection with Tarantino together. All of the films we are sort of bonded over, but the biggest one that really brought us together was Kill Bill. And I remember he kind of had to sneak me in because in Canada, most things are rated 18A, which you can bring a kid in, but there's our version of X is the hard R, which never happens. But of course, Kill Bill got, and I remember him having to sneak me in. It was like one of the best sort of cinema experiences of my life. And The Bride is just so phenomenal in it. And Lucy Liu is so killer in it. And Vivica A. Fox is just everything. 
And I, I could watch that movie once a month and just like it more and more every time. And then, of course, volume two is spectacular. I think I kind of do feel as if it's one film. Not everybody has that hmm, journey with it. But for me, it kind of is this one truly epic story about this woman that I love so much. And it has to be my favorite of all the QTs. I I mean, I get it. Um, it is. And yeah, I totally see it as one movie. I mean, and Tarantino does too. So, you know, let's listen to the guy who made it, you know? Um, I, so I agree with you. I see it as one big epic tale. And plus you kind of have to consider it one movie because it is essentially one story, you know, and it's one character moving through all of these amazing, you know, genres of film, you know, as she gets closer and closer to her goal. And it's such a high flying, like attempt at, covering like so many different styles and types of film and storytelling. And Mm -hmm. it's uh, the confidence with which he does that. You know, I can't imagine any other movie at that level, taking those kinds of swings and connecting with every single one, you know, the fact that, you know, and this is kind of true of Tarantino with all of his movies when it, it seems like when he sets his mind to do something, when he wants to tackle something that he doesn't, that he hasn't done before, like he, I, I I would love to know what his process is, but the man just he he makes himself be the very best. That we, you know, I mean, you look at the um, the blue leaf sequence in Kill Bill mm-hmm. Volume One, like that is one of the greatest action sequences ever set to film. Mm-hmm. He had never directed action before, and that man shot that scene. You can just tell how passionate he is about these subgenres and how passionate he is about film and how many films this man must be just absorbing and eating up every day of his life. You can just, it just reeks as authentic passion. And that's kind of why he can't go wrong because you can just tell how excited he is about all of these stories and about, you know, all of the references that he's pulling from. He's not trying to do something. He's just, he's just so, I don't know. I think the word excited resonates really sort of cemented that you know the fact that this movie is playing with so many different references so many different inspirations and yet it is all very clearly its own thing and uh i i I very much love it for that i i love that you can watch that movie and it feels like a primer on like 10 different types of grindhouse films you know Mm -hmm. i don't know why that's not more of a common halloween outfit the bride tracksuit because it's just the hell isn't it (laughs) right it's so killer it's so hot it's so good. We're moving on into 2007, where Grindhouse came out. So this is a double feature featuring Death Proof, a film by Quentin Tarantino, and Planet Terror, the Robert Rodriguez joint. And this is the first time, I think, that we're seeing Tarantino direct horror. And I know that he believes that this is his weakest outing, but I don't know if I feel that way. Death Proof is... Just an extraordinary, fun mm, event. You know, you got um, Kurt Russell playing the killer. It's a super grotesque setup where basically his weapon is his car. And the, the moment where he kills Rose McGowan is one of the most fun, but also most like upsetting deaths I think we've seen in horror in a really long time. And I love Death Proof. And it's also it's a film that's sort of cut into two. So you have 
the first half of the movie where you're seeing women get terrorized. And then you have the second half of the movie where the, a new set of women come in to do the terrorizing. And I just think it's the most fun shit in the world. Although I have to say I'm a much bigger fan of death proof than I am of planet terror. Um, I agree with that. I think death proof is a better film. I will say that between the two, like, you know, Grindhouse as a film and as an event, you know, my my God, we, I mean, the world let down those two filmmakers. We should have shown up in droves. Uh, mm-hmm. I watched it like two or three times in its opening week. So I you know, did I too. Did, I did, I did my too. part, damn it, you know. Um, but, you know, when it opened that first weekend, something like 4.5 million, my heart sank. I was like, you know, these two guys gave us three and a half hour you know, three and a half hours of like some of the greatest, just pure joy I've ever had in the theater watching movies like this. The fact that they mm-hmm. resurrected this type of filmmaking and, you know, they gave us the fake trailers and they gave us a movie each. And, you know, it, it felt like such an event. And, you know, people just kind of shrugged when it came out and it bummed me out. And, you know, I mean, yeah, sure. The movie might have been kind of a box office failure, but you know what? It totally set the template for what was going to happen in like straight to DVD filmmaking for the next five or six years. Like we, we got that grindhouse effect over everything. Like for years, like Rue Morgan Fangoria was stuffed full of ads for grindhouse riffs, you know? So uh, clearly something kind of captured at least genre fans imagination, but for what mm-hmm. they seemed to be setting out to do like planet terror kind of followed the script better in that it seemed to be a celebration and a send up of that type of movie, much in the same way as all of the fake trailers did. Whereas Tarantino's movie was just kind of a real movie, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it did kind of the grindhouse thing. It cut out the real, you know, with the, uh, the strip tease and, you know, the, the, the film was kind of like fucked up a little bit. Sure. But otherwise, like he just told a really good story. You know, he just made mm-hmm. a really great movie. And I understand where he's coming from. Like, I get why he calls it his worst. I think I I, I saw that quote where he said it's something like um, it's pretty good for a left-handed movie or something like that. And I, I get it. Yeah. I understand. But at the same time, like I said at the very beginning of all of this, um, yeah, I mean, the, the movies differ in quality by degrees, but they're all four-star movies. Would Death Proof land near the bottom for me? Sure. But it's also better than so many other movies. It's still complete joy to me. It's an utter fucking blast. I love the big swings that he takes, not just with doing the Grindhouse stuff and some of the stylistic choices that he makes, you know, with the uh, the the image, one of which, uh, if I told you, might ruin the movie forever for you. Um, I would say that the next era of Tarantino films are going to merge two into one for time's sake, but I also think thematically it works. We've got Inglorious Bastards from 2009, which is sort of his first vision of alternate history of sort of the subgenre of war film. And then in 2012, we've got Django Unchained, um, a very serious spaghetti Western, which actually got him his second Academy Award uh, Inglorious Bastards is one that's sort of close to my heart, you know, as a Jew, I guess there's something about it that feels special. My grandfather survived Auschwitz and I don't know, there's something about this movie that just 
really is joyous to me as a Jew, getting to watch it and getting to watch things unfold in a way that, you know, would have been a little bit, would have been preferable, I guess, ultimately. I don't want to believe that Hitler got away with just taking a, a cyanide capsule and dying peacefully. Like, I want that fucker to have gotten machine gunned in the face by an angry Jew right before he gets burnt up in a movie theater. That's a far <laughs> more preferable ending. And I, I wish my grandfather had seen that movie. I think uh, I, I think he would have had an absolute blast with it. I know that me and my dad sure as hell did. And then, of course, there's Django Unchained, which kind of has a, I want to say, a, a similar satisfaction with its finale but it definitely has a couple of brilliant performances you've got leonardo dicaprio who should have received an oscar and you have jamie fox who also should have received an oscar this is a movie i i would say this is yeah this is the last time he got any gold this was i think one of his most would you say this is maybe was perceived as like one of the most prestigious um tarantino releases at least when it was actually put into the world yeah i mean it kind of felt like that it was released i think right around christmas if not directly on christmas and so it seemed like it was kind of being positioned as an oscar bait kind of movie in a way that maybe a lot of his other movies hadn't been um so i wonder if that kind of played into it beyond the fact that it's just a great fucking movie but uh and you're right i think you're right to pair it with inglorious bastards because in many ways, I mean, there are parallels to them, not the least of which is their endings, as you pointed out. I mean, both movies end with uh, oppressors being trapped in a, uh, you know, well, in a theater in one movie and in a house in another as the house is blown up. Um, and, you know, it, again, it's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, this is this is how it should have happened. This is how every, you know, <laughs> place like this should have gone. Yeah. But and he's really good at that. He's good at like giving us, and I, I guess we'll, we'll talk about the second time he does an alternative version of history with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But he, as brutal as he is, he really, I don't know, he 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 can give us the comfort that we need as an audience. He 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 gives us he, like we leave the theater feeling satisfied in a way that is almost surprising considering how nasty these movies are. Well, and the reason he does is because he knows that. I think, and it's so weird to me that he is constantly taking the task for the amount of violence in his movies when so many other filmmakers aren't. Like, I'm sorry, but I don't remember Martin Scorsese catching much hell when Casino came out. And Casino is every bit as violent as, you know, some of Tarantino's movies are. And yet, for whatever reason, it seems like there was a conversation that started at the very beginning of his career and then people just couldn't let go of that. So the, the, the fact that there was any violence in his movies at all moving forward, people had the light on that. It was the cheapest sort of way to, uh, I don't know, create controversy, I think. And I love that in the latter part of his career, he basically started saying fuck it to that and going back at his critics, you know, sometimes in interviews, like there are some marvelous ones, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the uh was her name Jan I think uh who took him to task mm-hmm. for the violence in Kill Bill and uh just seeing him go back at her or when somebody tried to draw the parallels between the violence in Django and Chain to like school shootings you know and the fact that he calls bullshit on that so decisively is great I I I would love to know I I wouldn't dare ask him because I wouldn't want him to think in the first few words of the question that I was actually going down that route I don't know that he would give me the opportunity to finish the question 
but I, I would love to know why he thinks that he is singled out as a filmmaker for using violence in his films, especially when he uses it so well. He understands that violence can be fun. It can be cathartic. You know, yeah, his movies are, they, they can trade in brutality, but it's always necessary to the story. And it's always to, to, to get yeah. us to that point where, you know, we can walk out of the theater sort of skipping away merrily, you know? Um, yeah. I think camp is a really difficult tone for people to understand and to grasp. And I think a lot of basics just have no sense of what it is. And I do think there's a sprinkling of camp in almost everything that he does. I think the violence kind of lives in there. How do you not watch that big gunfight uh, in Django Unchained in the house when people are exploding in buckets of like bright red (laughs) Kensington gore while, you know, like a rap song plays in the background? How do you not laugh your ass off at that? Like, no, it's it's pure joy. It's pure joy. And people don't get it. I think that's part of the issue is that I just don't think some of these older critics are really tapped into what he's doing. Agreed. Um, and then there's what I sort of see as his modern era. We have these last two films of Quentin Tarantino. We've got The Hateful Eight in 2015, which is sort of another revisionist history western, very dark, snowy um, bottle film. And then we have his most recent outing, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is yet again a masterpiece and yet again a totally unique entry into the canon of Quentin Tarantino films. And I'm very interested to hear sort of, you know, why it's so important to you. Um, Yeah. uh, uh, One, I just want to say love Hateful Eight. Um, Weirdly enough, I think Hateful Eight would fall near, more near the bottom of his filmography for me. But again, four-star film, love it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, Josh, do you want to go first and talk about how maybe you feel I should, about the movie? Because I feel like I'll have, I'll have less to say on it because while I love it, it's maybe not, you know, it's not my Kill Bill, but I mean, I, I don't think I'm alone with saying that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really took me by surprise. It is not what I was expecting it to be, and I'm not just alluding to its finale. It is, I don't know, it's unlike anything I had really seen before and i was also surprised that the tone was kept i want to say light but i guess yeah maybe it is one of the lighter quentin tarantino outings that we've ever seen and the performances are just really incredible and i guess the reason i'm drawn to it is the sharon tate subplot and the fact that you know we get to keep her at the end which is what we deserve as an audience just like we deserve to get to see hitler get exploded into you know, rain of bullets. We deserve to keep her and we get that. Also, there's this, you know, these two really phenomenal performances by Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. I don't know if Brad Pitt, I deserve, he deserved all the love that he received, especially in comparison to um, DiCaprio, who was right there, who for me really stole the film. Okay, I'm going to say it. Maybe it's controversial, but I do think the Brad Pitt performance was a little bit overrated, but it definitely, definitely deserve its slot in this big ensemble. I love this film. Um, Counterpoint, I think Brad Pitt's performance deserved even more love um, (laughs) than it got. That's okay. I I love, love, love Cliff Booth. Uh, I think he is one of the great characters of all time. I, I adore him. 
uh, so much. Uh, but I think you're right that DiCaprio, like, it feels like DiCaprio's performance was a little overshadowed, which is a shame because he's giving, like, career best work in that film. Um, I think Margot Robbie is amazing in the film. Um, I adore this movie. It was funny when I watched it. I watched it opening night, not even opening night. I watched like the Thursday premiere of it. And um, I walked out and I really, really liked the movie, but I remember thinking like, Oh, you know, it doesn't really feel like Tarantino to me. You know, it doesn't, you know, it didn't really give me what I wanted out of that movie. I kind of had it in my head crystallized what the movie was going to be. And I walked in and it so, totally was not that movie uh which by the way i called the twist from like the announcement of the movie like literally the moment that they announced that it was going to be something dealing with like the manson murders or whatever i remember texting a friend of mine who's every bit the tarantino nut that i am and i was like it's totally going to be inglorious bastards like there sharon tate is not going to die at the end of this movie if they do the manson thing and sure enough she didn't but it, that almost doesn't even matter you know um but I walked out and I just, I, I felt a little, maybe a little, like a teensy tiny bit disappointed in the movie, right? And then a day passed and I couldn't get it out of my head. And I watched it again Friday evening and I walked out and I was like, well, I was fucking nuts. This, this movie is incredible. I absolutely adore it. I can't wait to watch it again. And I watched it again. I think I saw it four times uh, before it left theaters. And um, here's the crazy thing is that even by the end of that fourth viewing, it climbed the list from being like maybe my least favorite Tarantino to my second favorite Tarantino underneath Pulp Fiction. And that's one hell of a climb. But over the course of the pandemic, when I was shut in and had nothing but four walls around me, I had, you know, all of these streaming services. I have a pretty damn sizable physical media collection. I had all these movies and I was stuck inside for a year. And, uh, you know, so I watched a lot and yet the one movie that I kept coming back to and probably watched a dozen or more times over the course of the pandemic, my ultimate comfort movie period was once upon a time in Hollywood. Like that that. movie meant so damn much to me. And it was more than any other film, more than any other book or comic or any activity that I could partake in that would take my mind off the fact that it felt like the world was fucking ending. Once upon a time in Hollywood was the one that fully pulled me in and sort of shielded me from the outside world. And I owe it a debt for that. And Tarantino, I think debt for that. Uh, it, it has long since surpassed Pulp Fiction, I think as his best movie for me, it's certainly, certainly my favorite. Never would have expected that given where we started, but, um, I, I love it. I wholeheartedly love that movie. I think it is one of the great films. We did a pretty good job sort of quickly going through the Quentin Tarantino canon. Josh, I don't know that it was that quick. But I think we're here. I think we've made it. I think we've gone through the brush and we've arrived at a subject that I'd never really thought we would be talking about on this podcast because it's so outrageous. And it's Quentin Tarantino's ultimate Jason Voorhees movie, Jinx, can I give you a little bit of information about what is going on with this weirdo project? Josh, I don't think you're going to have much more than a little bit of information <laughs> to give, but go right ahead. I'm going to do it with all that I can. So I don't know if you guys can even handle this, but go back in time in your mind to 2005. There were dinosaurs flying in the sky and really big alligators, and it was just like prehistoric era. And our good friends at IGN 
ran an article that really shooketh the internet. And it was IGN Film Force at the time. And I don't know exactly what that meant. Do you know what Film Force was? Was some kind of sub, like, what was going on with that? I don't know. It sounds it's hard to know. It's so long ago. It sounds like they might have had like superhero outfits. Maybe they fought crime yeah, at night. Like I, a genre outfit or I something. Yeah, it's but, so IGN Film Force in 2005 printed something pretty outrageous. IGN Film Force learned that none other than the Oscar winner Quentin Tarantino is in final negotiations to write and direct the ultimate Jason Voorhees movie. Ultimate Jason Voorhees movie. All of that is capitalized as if it was a title. An all-new Friday the 13th for New Line Cinema. While the rumor mill had long suggested that their next movie was going to be Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash, which fans of this podcast might remember as our initial episode, of course, Freddy vs. Jason 2 never happened. So instead, we got word that fans were going to be treated to an ultimate Jason Voorhees movie. The project was considered to be a co-venture between New Line and Paramount Pictures and is expected to be, unquote, a quickie that could get underway as early as this year, aka 2005. Tarantino's production company, Abandoned Part, referred us to the William Morris Agency, a rep, WMA, would only advise us that Tarantino has, unquote, not yet been offered the job while refusing to elaborate any further. So they published this with confidence in 2005, and I think it was just a couple months later in March of 2005 where Quentin Tarantino had something to say, and he was talking to Contact Music when he responded to these allegations, saying, What happened with Friday the 13th? Nothing at all. It's a complete lie. I like Jason and everything, but I have no intention of directing a movie. New Line talked to me about it, but it was a complete fabrication, that article. I would love to do a horror movie. I'm just saying it's not going to be Friday the 13th, which is pretty clear as day. I mean, it's like saying directly that this article was a full-blown lie, which is interesting because to my understanding, IGN is, you know, at least now considered to be quite respected outlet. So it would be bizarre to me that they would run just a bold-faced lie, although I don't know what their editorial staff looked like in 2005 but there were you know uh, rumors at the time that ign could have actually had some solid resources and if that's the case what was quentin tarantino really saying you know was there more conversations than he's letting on was he never really that interested in it but maybe somewhere someone was taking note like i'd be really interested to know all sides of uh, from what was going on from all parties in the situation um jinx what do you think was going on I, you know, who can say, but just reading between the lines from what we have, both from IGN and Tarantino himself, it sounds like he took a meeting and somebody thought that meant a hell of a lot more than it did. And it was a slow news day and somebody tried to spend some gold from that and it got more ink probably than it deserved. Um, I love the fact that... At some point, somebody probably said, oh, he's going to direct the ultimate Jason Voorhees movie as kind of like a descriptor for something that probably would have just been called Friday the 13th. But instead, Uh that's sort of been the title that's been like Tarantino was going to direct a movie called the ultimate Jason Voorhees movie. Like that fucking come on. Like what does ultimate mean? Because I feel like ultimate has this. I don't know, uh, definition in the world of superhero movies and superhero fiction that is kind of outside of my realm of understanding. Like, as a nerd jinx, like, 
what does ultimate really mean in genre? Well, I think in this case, it was just, you know, it's not necessarily like the last Jason Voorhees movie, but, you know, if that's what it would have been called, it wouldn't have been called that. But if that's what it would have been called, then I think it would just would have been a way of saying like, uh, this is the be all end all. It's going to be the most kick-ass Jason Voorhees movie you will have ever seen. And you know, I mean, if Tarantino had made a Jason Voorhees movie, I'm pretty sure it would have been the best. Yeah. You know, Jason Voorhees sure. movie ever, you know, it probably would have earned the title that he never would have given in the first place. But, you know, sure. Um, yeah, no, I, I just I it, it's fun to me that we are doing this episode about this because it's so clearly not a thing that actually was a thing. And I do love the uh, the the, mm-hmm. the initial story saying that, uh, you know, New Line had not yet offered him the job like they would have even had to like he could have just feigned interest and they would have been throwing money at him and this this was right after kill bill right so this is 2005 this was right after kill bill volume two was that a huge success i mean yeah certainly yeah i mean it was big enough that i mean he would have been a huge get for them now would it make more sense for this story to have come out maybe post death proof yeah probably because that movie tanked a little bit but uh-huh. no, it, it was pre and it is interesting that he was connected to that not long before he, you know, he said he would be interested in doing a horror movie. And then mm-hmm. his next movie was a horror movie. I think that's kind of cool. But um, oh, yeah, it was. But yeah, oh, no, no, it was. Yes, it was. I just don't think, you know, in in the span of these golden 10 movies that he lined up for himself to do that he would ever do a Friday the 13th. Movie. So Frankly, what, is gold, what is a golden ton movie? I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. It just, I, I think from fairly early on in his career, he said that he would only ever do 10 films. So oh, ten. the golden 10. Gotcha. Yeah. So he would do like these 10 movies. And at the end of that, he would be done. And so far as I know, he's still sticking to that. Now, I think once he finishes that last movie, he's not going to stop making stuff. He's probably just going to go to Netflix. He's going to, you know, do TV stuff like he'll write novels like he did the novelization for Once Upon mm-hmm. a Time in Hollywood, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's not going to stop making stuff, but I, I don't think we'll ever see him make an honest to goodness theatrical film that will upset that filmography because, you know, he he I get it. He wants it to be perfect. And, you know, he wants to drop the mic at the end of that 10th movie and feel proud mm-hmm. of everything that he's done before. He's not, he was never going to make a fucking Friday the 13th movie. It was he never going to happen. Well, my my sort of vision of IGN in my mind is like one of the top dogs one of like like a, like an institution that have got to have a number or at least one fact checker on hand. It, I don't like what was what was your impression of this place in two thousand and five? Was it the same level as now? I mean, I, I to be honest, I never really followed IGN. I'm not knocking them. It's just not a place uh-huh. that I. You know, that wasn't a, yeah, no, yeah. it wasn't a daily check for me. I mean, back in the day, it was probably, and look, sorry, like back in the early aughts, we didn't know what we know now, but yeah, I read Ain't It Cool News. I read, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Creature Corner. I, I read uh, Chud. I, re- I don't even know if Chud's still around. Uh, I read Horizons <laughs> and Coming Attractions. I probably we read. Had our, we had our corners for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I never really read IGN, but I will tell you one thing. I mean, back in that sort of Wild West that Ain't It Cool News kind of uh, contributed to and shaped in, in very not great ways, you know, kind of running a rumor and then backing down from it later that, you know, just for clicks, that was kind of the thing, you know, uh-huh. uh, and that totally seems what this would have been. Which we still do today, but you say rumor in the headline, you know, you, yeah. <laughs> you, gotta be, you know, if you think you have something, you gotta just be as transparent as humanly possible. But I will say, do, do I think that 
Tarantino ever would have made a Friday the 13th movie. I do not. That said, Mm -hmm. and Josh, if you're interested in this, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's outside the realm of reason to uh, maybe speculate on what a Tarantino Friday the 13th movie might be or might have been. I mean, I'm definitely interested in this because I think I have some ideas. So how would you start this off, Jix? Okay, so I would just say this. Based on Tarantino's filmography, like what can we extrapolate from all that's come before and apply it toward what we think a Tarantino Friday the 13th might have been? And so I came up with two things, kind of two hallmarks from Tarantino's Mm -hmm. filmography that I think could give us kind of a clue as to what we might get if he did a Friday the 13th movie. And folks out there listening, I know this is a stretch, but come on, have a little fun with us. We're into it, Jinx. We can't lie. Okay, so. Think about the opening of Reservoir Dogs. Think about the opening minutes of Pulp Fiction. It's first two scenes, in fact. Uh, think about long stretches of Jackie Brown or Death Proof or really the entirety of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Tarantino makes amazing hangout movies. Mm-hmm. He makes incredible hangout films. Just great characters chilling with, you know, just great actors, great dialogue. Mm-hmm. Now, Imagine how that would apply to something like Friday the 13th with loads of camp counselors just hanging around, you know, going back to, um, okay. Yeah. Going back to once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, uh, there we have a movie with three main characters and loads of supporting characters where we're primarily just spending time with them, but it all builds to this big, violent, cathartic final act bloodbath. I don't think it'd be a stretch to imagine a Tarantino Friday the 13th doing something similar. Just imagine a group of the best young actors possible just shooting the shit for two hours, having their own little stories, their own little subplots, and Jason is just hanging out on the periphery. Like, we know he's there, we maybe see him haunting around in the background like Michael Myers, but no killing actually occurs until it's all at once, all at the end, just one insane, revved up bloodbath. Mm-hmm. I just interject something that making me think is like, if somehow he did make this movie, like as camp and as big as that violence would be, at the same time, I think it would be the only time we'd ever see what a Jason massacre would look like if it's something that maybe could have happened in real life. Like, the way that he would make it work is that I think there would be a slight sense of realism to it. Like, you would believe that this could be happening, and it would be as horrifying as you could ever imagine. Well, he makes you... That's the thing, is no matter how heightened the violence is in his movies, um, he still makes you feel it. Like, um, you know, it's ridiculous when, uh, Cliff Booth is dragging around like this little Manson act, like beating the living fuck out of her, you know, smashing her face, you know, on the, uh, you know, the mantle or against segment. Yeah. And you're laughing your ass off while it's happening and blood is spraying probably more than it would in real life. And yet at the same time, you're also cringing because that shit hurts to watch. It hurts when he throws a can of dog food into you know, the, the, the one Manson chick's face and it breaks her nose open, you know, (laughs) and yet you're also pumping your fist in the air because they're all terrible people and they were there to do a terrible thing. Yeah. Um, The fire death is real. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think that's the one thing that Tarantino does better than anything is that he makes generally when we watch movies, violence can either be fun or it can hurt to watch. Right. 
And he somehow has found a way, like an alchemy, to make both work at once. Absolutely, he does. And you're saying, just to go back to like the idea of Jason lurking in the background in the shadows for probably like a good amount of time, it really resonates yet again back to the Nick and Costa script, where you get to know these characters. They're super like charismatic and grounded and just like a joy to be a fly on the wall while they talk. And that's, I think what you would have here too. I think it would be not so far away from that script that we covered a couple episodes ago. Yeah, I could get that. It would definitely be character focused, which is something that, you know, the original Friday, the 13th movies maybe weren't so much, you know, (laughs) I don't Uh, think there's, a single one that was. Yeah, so no, I I think that would set it apart definitely. Uh, I think it would have been something special, you know. Maybe he would play around with the timeline a little bit, uh, you know, do some interesting sort of asides like he does, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, oh, but to wonder, you know, maybe one Mm -hmm. day we'll get like his made-for-Netflix Friday the 13th movie. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Although, you know, something that we both know and I think we can't ignore right now is that his favorite Friday the 13th film is number five, because what we haven't mentioned yet today is that Quentin Tarantino is an absolute maniac. Yeah. So that was, <laughs> I didn't know that was his favorite. I somehow, I, I, I could be wrong. So if I'm wrong, I'm absolutely sorry, but I'm pretty sure he mentioned at one of those masters of horror dinners or something like that, that the fifth is his favorite. And it's because of how grimy and disgusting it is. And that he thinks that that's what the franchise is, is that like, it's kind of is like a, porno or something like that it'd be just i have to google what he has to say about friday the 13th part five everybody because it's weird and it's interesting and it's just like he he keeps you guessing especially with his taste in movies i think his delivery of films is always like prestige top-notch 100 but his taste is like he knows everything he loves it all yeah. Oh God. I love listening to him just talk about movies. And I love the fact that, you know, usually we would be relegated to listening to Tarantino talk about his favorite movies or really any movie at all when uh, he's promoting his own stuff. Right. Which is why that's, it's like a one, two punch of Christmas presents every time one of his movies come out, because one, we're getting a new Tarantino movie, but two, we're getting a new round of Tarantino doing press and talking about movies, you know, which is always great. I know it's so like, we don't deserve this, but now, you know, he actually has that, uh, that podcast that just started with Roger Avery, um, the video archives podcast, the first episode of which has already dropped. And, uh, I, I just love the fact that we're going to be getting, well, I don't know when the episodes are dropping. I don't know if it's weekly, bi-weekly, monthly. I don't know. But I love the fact that we can now expect a steady stream of Tarantino and Avery, who's marvelous as well, chatting about movies. I love that. It um, just proves how much he fucking loves it. Because this man does not need to be doing a podcast. He's doing it because he's obsessed. Yes. And, okay, so we talked about a Hangout movie. Now, there is another path that this movie might take. If Tarantino mm-hmm. did Friday the 13th, and again, looking at what's come before and trying to apply it to, you know, what could have been or, you know, what might be one day, it's not going to happen, but still. Um, you know, if we look at like parts of his original script for Natural Born Killers or say Stretches of Death Proof or look at the first half of From Dusk Till Dawn, Tarantino can write one hell of a road movie. Mm-hmm. And weirdly enough, when Tarantino does horror, 
there's always a road horror element to it, like a yes, road movie is. element to it. Heck, we talked about this when we uh, talked about his version of Halloween, Halloween 6. It was going to be Michael Myers <laughs> and the man in black driving down Route 66, stopping at diners with Michael killing people at every turn along the way. So uh-huh. it's not unreasonable to Whoa, imagine. you're blowing my mind. <laughs> it's not unreasonable to imagine a Tarantino take on Friday the 13th having a it road movie to aspect to it. I don't know wait, what wait. that would even... Oh. I'm sorry. Yes, he does such a fucking killer road movie and makes such a good road horror movie. But can I, in my heart, see a Jason Voorhees road movie? What does that look like? All I know, I have okay. I have no idea what it would even look like. I don't. <laughs> okay. But I know it's Campus Lake, man. I know that we had better get like a Tarantino trunk shot looking up at Jason at some point. That's all I would want. Yeah, you'd get it. But hundred uh, percent. No, but I mean, what what else beyond a road movie? You know, okay. would, it, would it be chronologically fractured? You know, we get a trunk shot, we get a of other movies. I talked about how I'm so fucking obsessed with Kill Bill all day tonight, and that's making me think of like you know, Women's Revenge and the Final Girl, and I would need there to be like a woman protagonist in this film, and I might be thrilled. If she maybe has some revenge to take on Jason, maybe <laughs> as stupid as that sounds, I'd eat that up. So like maybe like what would it be like if like we did get a third film and Ginny was the protagonist and she was coming back sort of um, Tommy Jarvis style to like make sure Jason was dead. And then of course he's not like what if we had a Friday the 13th part six, but with a female lead with a bit of a Quentin Tarantino sprinkle. As long as she wears like uh, a Bruce Lee tracksuit, like a man. <laughs> yeah, invert it though. So like it's majority black with a yellow stripe. And no katana. Like I, I wanted to carry like a Hattori Hanzo machete. Where were we? Okay. Wow, Jinx. I feel like we really. I feel like. Okay, I, I, I just love that you essentially pitched like killed Jason, and now I'm trying to think <laughs> of other uh, other time like Counselor Dogs or Pulp Friday. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, oh my God. Okay, if a direct sequel to Part Six, we could do uh, Jason Unchained. Uh, I like that. My Ooh, favorite think- okay, would okay, be okay. Once Upon a Time in Crystal Lake. Once Upon a Time in Crystal Lake. I love it, and also like, what's Margot Robbie doing? And can Uma Thurman play Pamela? Uh, I I would watch the hell out of that movie. Like hot young Pamela, you know, like how they like, you know, like the new aunt. I don't know what's the aunt from Spider Man. You know how she's hot and young now. Uh, aunt May, although she's That's dead now. So sorry, spoilers. But whoa, I didn't know that. That makes sense. I'm kidding. I haven't seen the Spider Man no, movie she's, since she's fine. The first of the three new ones. Maybe I only saw the second one. I saw one of the new the home movies on a plane, and that's my journey. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have okay? Are, are is that sort of our vision for Ultimate Jason Voorhees, or are, is there any gaping missing blind spots? Uh all I know is that this movie is never going to happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like the number one on this podcast of movies that is never going to happen. Yes, yeah, it's not like I was joking about the Netflix later. Like it's it's never ever go. I would love to see a Tarantino slasher, and I know he said that like Death Proof is a slasher where the killer, you know, just slashes with his car, car. Yeah. which is which is awesome. But like, I I really want to see like an honest to goodness like you know a riff on a slashery slasher 
from Tarantino. Now, whether or not we'll ever see that, like in some form that won't be a movie, I don't know. But even still, is it going to be Friday the 13th? No, because it's, no, it's going not. to be tied up with the law. I don't think he's ever going to give us another horror movie. Sorry to interrupt. But I want a quick ranking of Friday the 13th from both of us. Is that possible? I'm ready. Fuck. Let me write them down. Okay. <laughs> okay, you know what? List me yours, and then... um. I'll write them down sort of with you as I go. Okay. I'll, I'll figure it out. You go first. Okay. So uh, rankings of Friday the 13th movies. Um, here we go. I'm going to go right at the top of the list. Wait, should I count down to number one or should I just list them one to ten? Ooh. Mm, can you go? I think I go best to worst. Best to worst. Okay. So right at the top. I'm going to put Tom McLaughlin's Friday the 13th 6, Jason Lives. Fuck yeah. It, it's just the best. I'm going to follow that up with number four, which I think is the best, like, straightforward Friday movie there is. I, I love it. Uh, introduction of Tommy Jarvis. It's genuinely scary. It looks great. It moves like a bat out of hell. Like, can't get much better than four. Uh, third might be a bit surprising, and I know fans will probably shake their fists, but whatever, I'm being honest here. I adore Freddy versus Jason. I think that movie's an absolute blast. I'm going to follow that up with Friday the 13th, 2009, uh, which is a remake. I don't care what the writers say. It is it is a blast of a movie. It's beautifully made. It's scary. It's fun. Uh, I dig it. I'm going to follow that up with Jason X, which uh, I think is just another blast. Uh, I, I, I think that movie is so much fun. And uh, from there, I would go Friday the 13th Part 2. I think it's a genuinely super cool slasher. Uh, I love the kill scenes in them. I think it's a good-looking movie, especially with the new Scream Factory disc with the polished-up print. Just fun, 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 fun movie. I would follow that up with the first Friday the 13th, which is, I I think I've said before, like, I, I... Back in the day, I was not a huge fan of this franchise, and I only recently found an appreciation for it. But uh, I really do dig that first movie. I think it's really, really good. Um, following that, I would probably do part seven. I think that movie is a bit of a trudge at times, but I love the psychokinesis stuff. And uh, I mean, Kane Hodder is Jason and that final act. I mean, come on. It doesn't get much better than that. Uh, Jason goes to hell. I think it's a lot of fun. It gets too much hell for what it is, uh, which I mean, I appreciate the big swings that it took. Uh, Jason takes Manhattan is, you know, it's all right. It's, it's fine. Um, I would probably say Friday three after that. Uh, I know that's, it's pretty far down the list for a movie that gave Jason his iconic mask. And yet, I just didn't care that much about it. I, I really, I, I didn't. Uh, and at the very bottom of the list of this ranking on an episode that's going to have Quentin Tarantino's name attached to it, a man who said that Friday Five is his favorite, at the bottom <laughs> of my list is Friday Five. That's fair. Not a fan. Although I will say this. I Not do think the climax is pretty Decent. fun and i do like the reveal of roy i don't care how nonsensical it is yeah, yeah you know what fuck a y'all roy is not that bad <laughs> um and i do like the final moment of it with tommy but yeah beyond yeah. that not the kid's cute i like the kid and kids usually suck and the kid in that movie is 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 pretty good yeah um yeah all right i actually that's a that's a rundown that i can not disrespect 
that is a rundown that I'm not mad at, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. All right, Josh, um, hit us. What's your ranking? Um, by the way, when I said, oh my God, it wasn't because I was like, you're ranking three so low. It's because I completely forgot to rank three. And that is how I feel <laughs> about number three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so here is my ranking. I have to also start with Jason Lives Part 6. It is the ultimate Jason movie, in my opinion. It is self-aware. It is scary. It is, I don't know. It's like the first time Jason kind of feels modern but it's in a way that just works so well. And also Tommy Jarvis in it. What? Like probably the, the number one babe of the eighties. Number two, I think is Friday the 13th part two. I think it's just so scary. I think it's, I think it's the scariest one for me. It's like the one that's like, huh? Like maybe this is actually happening. And that mask is so good. I'm so obsessed also with the town that dreaded sundown. And I think it's something to do with the, the baghead. Oh, I get it. I get it. Then number four, I just feel like it's kind of, I don't know, feels quintessential in its own right. Um, then the first movie, the first movie for a long time, even ranked lower. Um, but I just rewatched crystal Lake memories and I was like, no, the first movie is just a piece of art that needs respect. Then I met Freddy versus Jason and then I'm at uh, the remake, 2009. And I think the two of them, because they have the same writers, kind of maybe share an era, at least. Um, Jason X is fucking incredible. I will never apologize for liking Jason X. Part 7 is really fun. Uh, there's The women in that are hilarious. The protagonist and, like, the one with the straight hair. You know who I'm talking about. She's the best. Um, part 8, Jason on a boat. Fuck yes. Won't apologize for that. Then my final two are five and nine. And you know what? I don't want to be mean about it. You know what? I'm 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 grateful for both of them at the end of the day. I think that's fair. And I feel like you and me have somehow, against all odds, survived camp. Or at least canceled camp, I guess. Yeah, it's funny. We've been sitting out here by the campfire all night long <laughs> over the course of this mm-hmm. past month. And uh mm-hmm. Golly, it's really quiet, and there hasn't been anybody. I, I didn't notice because we were like really getting into it, and like some of these concepts were really fun and cool. But now that we're done, it's like I just I wait a feel like we're not the only. Josh, did did you did, hear that? Did you hear that? <laughs> I think this is probably we should we should probably head out. But listen. I had a great time. Thank you for joining me on Campus Cancelled. And uh, Jinx, we always love having you and we hope that you come back again really, really soon. (laughs) I will if we make it out of here alive, Josh. (laughs) We won't. Jinx, where can you be found on the internet? Uh, I can be found at Bloody Disgusting, where you can read my columns there, like Phantom Limbs, and you can also find me at Scream Addicts and listen to me podcast a little when I'm uh, not at this madman's disposal. So, uh, other than that, you might find me in pieces. Um, But we'll still have his online imprint. And everybody listening at home, thank you so much for checking into this miniseries, Campus Cancelled. We had a really fun time. Um, We are going to be taking a a little bit of time off because we're working on something we're excited to show off once it's ready. We're going to be back in the fall, so you're not going to have to be without development help for too long. But I hope you guys have a really great summer and you're not too disappointed that Campus Cancelled.
Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. It really makes all the difference in the world. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.